The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. A privilege to be with you today. Wonderful to worship God together. Mission agencies use a couple different terms to describe uh, countries or um, people groups. They use the term unengaged to uh, refer to a people group that doesn't have any of the the Bible translated into their language. There are no missionaries at all working in that group. And then they use the term unreached to describe people groups that are less than 2% evangelical. So if if less than 2% of that people group understand the gospel of salvation by grace, um, they're called unreached. Poland is a country of 38 million people, and um, one-fourth of 1% of that population is evangelical Christian. So they're um, down low in the unreached category. Um, I shared quite a few statistics and quite a bit about Poland in the Sunday school hour, so I don't want to repeat a lot of that. But um, Poland has about 2,500 of these, they're called gminy, I think maybe the best translation is counties, Um, about 2,500 counties in the whole country, and about 2,200 of them have no Protestant work, no evangelical church that's teaching that salvation is a gift given to us because of Jesus' work on the cross. Um, So the need in Poland is huge. Um, Please pray that God would raise up church planters and send them to these communities that have no gospel witness. Whether those church planners be um, Polish men or, or um, missionaries from other, other countries, um, pray for this country. That isn't remote. It's not in the middle of the jungle somewhere or, or you know, far, from, far from civilization. But in Europe, and um, quite accessible, but somehow has been overlooked. So we would appreciate it. Um, there's prayer cards on our little uh, table there in the hallway um, please grab a prayer card, put it somewhere where you'll remember to pray for Poland and um, Polish pastors and the places that have no, no church at all. I met uh, Rick and Kim when I was 14 years old. you have any 14-year-olds? Um, they, they came to the church that I'd, I was a member of, and uh, it was a large church, and there were a few pastors, but real quickly... Um, Rick became <laughs> my pastor, and <clears throat> and is my pastor today. I don't know. I was thinking this week why, of the of the few pastors that were there, and certainly each of them were a blessing to me and helped me. Why it was that. Rick was unique, and, and um, I quickly kind of saw him as the one that I looked up to and the one that was an authority in my life. And um, I think there's three things. <clears throat> you can see his love for God. It's real. There's no, there's no facade there. He loves, loves the Lord. And um, his commitment to the Bible. Uh, if you're committed to preach the gospel and, and be faithful to Scripture, that's always going to offend people. Always. No matter how religious or, or you know, Christian 
situation you're in, a person who's faithful to the word of God is, is going to step on other people's toes. And I, I watched as sometimes Rick was um, at odds with other people in the church. And I think that was almost always, or maybe always, because uh, he was trying to just clearly preach what the word of God says. And that offends people. People outside the church and people in the church. And um, that commitment that he had to... We all make mistakes and and we're all sometimes uh, misunderstanding some parts of Scripture. But his commitment to stand where Scripture stands everywhere he could. And thirdly, uh, Rick and Kim love people. And I, I worry about them sometimes because of that. Because they, you just, they just love people, and people are going to let you down. And if you just love people and, and give yourself to people, you're going to get hurt. You, you can't not get hurt. That's, that's why a lot of us kind of stop doing that and kind of just stay inside ourselves. Because you keep giving and giving and pouring into people, that's going to make life difficult for you. And they've done that. They've done that to me and my family and... Um, I, I don't know exactly where I'd be if it weren't for Rick and Kim and their ministry in my life for years and years and years. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to get it together. Don't worry. Uh, I'm excited about the, the uh, Chili Dog um, Fellowship after, after church. Kim told me that at some point there's going to be a, a slide with <laughs> chili on it. <clears throat> they get to slide. <laughs> While people throw hot dogs at you. That's, that is not made up. That's a quote. <clears throat> All right, Mark chapter 8. Um, I don't always give my sermons a title. I, I have given this one a title. I would call it, Do You Have a Clear View of Jesus? Do you have a clear view of Jesus? Uh, there are many views of who Jesus is. Uh, the Muslims believe he was a prophet. Hindus believe that he was a man sent by God to do the will of God. Many, if not most, atheists will tell you that he's a wise man and a good teacher. I heard a preacher in Poland one time say that Jesus was constantly going around doing miracles and signs and wonders. And we are to be continuing his work today. So a view of Jesus that he's a miracle worker. The hippie movement some years ago claimed to be Jesus' followers. They saw him as a man who wandered around from town to town. A man who didn't settle down with a nine-to-five job and didn't buy a house with a white picket fence but a man who who wandered around and lived freely, wearing sandals and talking about love, their view of Jesus. There are many views of Jesus Christ, and it is possible that we don't have a completely clear view of who he is. We're going to look at Mark chapter 8. I'd like to point out a few views of Jesus, a few ways that people perceived him, And maybe that will help us to have a clearer view. Let's read verses 11 and 12. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? 
Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. So let's look at this Pharisee view of Jesus. They come to Jesus and they say, they say show us a sign and then we'll follow you. We have at least one example of this in the Old Testament. Gideon tested God. He said, God, if you'll make this fleece wet and all the ground around it dry, then I'll know that you're going to keep your promise. Is this a correct view of Jesus? Can we ask him to jump through some hoops for us? If he fulfills the criteria that we set, does a miracle for us, then we'll believe in him? God, if you get me through this difficult time in my marriage, then I'll turn my life around and live for you. God, if you will help my child, then I will serve you for the rest of my life. It says he sighed deeply. He's grieved. He's not pleased with this sort of behavior. I have a question. How many signs do we need from God before we start treating him as God? We've read from verse 11, but let's drop back a couple verses and look at the context. I'll start reading from verse 6. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break and gave to his disciples to set before them, and they did set them before the people. And they had a few small fishes, and he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about 4,000. This is the context. Jesus had just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few fish, and then the Pharisees walk up and they say, could you show us some sign? The same is true of Gideon. An angel from God appeared to him and told him God's plans. That should have been sign enough. But no, he asked the angel to jump through a hoop. I'll read from Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 17. And he said unto him, this is Gideon speaking to the angel, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not thence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until you come again. And Gideon went in and made ready a kid, a goat, and unleavened cakes of an ephah of flour. The flesh he put in a basket, he put the broth in a pot, and he brought it unto him under the oak and presented it. And the angel of, the, of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord put forth the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Was that enough? It wasn't. We know the rest of the story. It wasn't enough. There's no end to sign-seeking. The second problem with this view of Jesus is that it's a sort of bartering. 
We can't barter with Jesus. We can't say, God, if you will answer this request of mine, then I will start to tithe. Then I'll serve in the church. Then I will attend regularly. Then I will give up a certain sin. One of the problems with this sort of thinking is that God doesn't need anything. He's not worried that he's going to run out of money or out of workers. He has no need to barter for anything. Paul said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Christianity is different from every other religion in the world. In all other religions, people serve the gods. But in Christianity, God has no needs whatsoever. He serves us. We have needs. We need to know the truth. And God has generously given us the word of God. We need power to overcome sin and live in obedience. So God has generously given us his spirit. We need fellowship and friendship and people to come alongside us and walk with us in the Christian life. So God has generously given us the whole body of Christ, the church. In this relationship between people and God, we have all the needs. And he gives and gives to meet those needs while he has no needs. Christianity is not a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of relationship. This first view of Jesus in this passage, this Pharisee view, do we ever treat Jesus in the way the Pharisees are treating him? Requiring that he meet our standards. Offering him our services if he would offer us his. Let's read from verse 13 and we'll talk about the disciples' view of Jesus. And he left them and entered into a ship again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he said unto them, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not? Neither neither understanding? Have ye your heart hardened? Having eyes, see ye not? Having ears, hear ye not? Do you not remember? A little leaven, yeast, in some dough, has an effect on the whole loaf of bread. Leaven goes all through the dough. And Jesus is talking about either the false teaching of the Pharisees or possibly the spiritual pride of the Pharisees, that these things can't be tolerated even in the very least because they won't stay small. You can't have a little pride in your life. 
but it will affect every part. The disciples got none of that. They're pretty sure he's talking about a snack. Let's look in verse 17. And when Jesus knew that, he said unto them, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. And then 18, having eyes see ye not, ears hear ye not. Let's stop. He's basically saying, are you saved? Do you understand anything about me? You have eyes, but are they blind? You have ears, but have you not heard? You have a mind, but do you not understand? Are you like those who can't see? And you must remember that at this point, the disciples have left family and job and home for almost a full three years. These aren't just anyone in the crowd. They're his disciples. And he looks at them and he says, are you blind? I know something about leaving family and friends and home. My wife knows something about that. Can you imagine after three years in Poland of living in a culture that's not our own, one of our friends calling up and saying, Ben, do you have any idea what it means to follow Christ? Any idea what it means to be a Christian? That, at that point, that would be offensive. And that's what we have here. He's not just speaking to everyone in the crowd. He looked at those 12 who have left everything to follow him. He looks at them and he says, are, are you even saved? Are you blind? How could a person who is a follower of Christ, who is a member of a church and is serving in a church and has turned their back on, on some things in their life, how could that person have a hard heart? I'm not sure, but bear with me for a minute. Let me ask some questions. Have you ever asked God to do something for you, do something in your life, and he just hasn't done it? Asked him to heal a relationship with no answer? Asked him to remove a temptation, a thing you know you shouldn't do, and you don't want to do it, but you're just so tempted time after time, and you continue to battle with this temptation, asking God to take it away, but he just doesn't? Have you asked him to take away some sort of suffering in your life, and he hasn't answered your request? And then, are you tempted to quit? When a person is suffering, there can come a temptation to quit on God. Because you think, God's way can't be the best way. Because I'm suffering. So I'll just give up on that and live the way everyone else is living because I can see they're not suffering. Paul wrote, Yea, and all who will live a godly life in Jesus Christ shall suffer. And in another place, Paul wrote, I die daily. Jesus taught, and then the Holy Spirit through Paul repeated throughout the New Testament the truth that Christ suffered. And true disciples of Christ will suffer. But in the moment of suffering, there can come a temptation to quit. And there have been those who have turned back in the day of battle. 
John Mark went on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas and turned back when the journey involved more suffering than he was willing to bear. Even though these guys were disciples, Jesus looked at them and asked, is their heart hard? And the question is valid for each of us. Next, let's look at Peter's view of Jesus. But before we get to Peter, we have kind of a strange story, starting in verse 22. Let me read. And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him. And he besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he, if he saw aught. And he looked up and he said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. Why? Why did Jesus heal this man in two stages? Was he a bit weak? Did he not have the power to heal him outright in one step? Of course not. Jesus healed this man in two stages in order to teach something. It is possible for your eyes to be opened, but not opened all the way. It's possible for your eyes to be opened, but not opened all the way. When I married Sarah more than 17 years ago, I thought I knew her pretty well. And without any doubt, I did. But I know her better now, and I desire to know her better still. It's fair to say that 17 years ago, my eyes were opened, but certainly not all the way. Do you know Jesus? Without any doubt, the answer is yes. But maybe not as clearly as you should. Are you still eager to study him, to know him more? Starting in verse 27, let's look at Peter's view of Jesus. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom do ye say that I am? And Peter answereth, and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. So many people were calling Jesus John the Baptist or Elijah. These people had a very high view of Jesus. Elijah and John the Baptist were prophets of God and great prophets of God. God used those men to play a very important role in the nation of Israel and in the history of the world. But Peter recognizes that their praise is far too low. Jesus is not just a prophet. He is the promised rescuer the son of David who will be greater than King David, a leader greater than Moses who led the nation out of bondage, 
a leader greater than Joshua who brought them into the promised land and drove out the giants. All of the prophets and priests and kings through the whole history of Israel were only pictures of this true Messiah, the real anointed one, the true king. Israel had been promised peace and joy, shalom. God had promised that a Messiah would bring peace and joy on earth. And Peter correctly recognizes that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. The king who will put all things right. Friend, if you are feeling lost in this world, and you don't have this peace and joy, which the word of God talks about, I have good news for you. You were created by a God who loves you. And you will never find fulfillment in this world any other way than through a relationship with Him. However, you cannot come directly to God on your own. We have all broken His laws. We need someone to intercede for us, to bring us before God. And that man is Jesus. From the moment our first parents rebelled against God, God sent them away from his presence. And at the same moment, he promised that one day he would send a rescuer to reunite mankind to God. That man is Jesus of Nazareth. The only way you can come to God and have peace with God and find true life is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now let's look at what Jesus does in verses 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. So when Peter said the words, You are the Messiah, Jesus accepted those words. He said nothing to negate that. He said, Yes, I am the king, but I am not anything like the king you've been expecting. He calls himself the Son of Man. We automatically think that that means human. But Jesus is using that word to refer to Old Testament prophecy about one that would come who was called the Son of Man. And Jesus stands before his disciples saying, the prophets were talking about me. Um, Let me read from Daniel chapter 7. One prophecy that Daniel talks about, this coming Son of Man. I'm reading verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and and they brought him near before him. So this Son of Man comes and stands before God the Father. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man, who Daniel was talking about, the one who has dominion over everything and whose dominion is eternal, Jesus stands before his 12 disciples and he says, Daniel was talking about me. That's shocking. But then what Jesus says is for them even more shocking. He says the words, the Son of Man must suffer. How does that work? There were prophecies, there are prophecies in the Old Testament about a mysterious servant of the Lord in Isaiah 44, 43, 44, 53, one who suffers. But no one was thinking that those prophecies were describing the Messiah. The Messiah, Daniel's Son of man was supposed to defeat evil and injustice. How could one defeat evil and injustice by suffering? It seems ridiculous. It seems impossible. What was Peter's reaction? Peter, who had just publicly proclaimed, you are the one, now says... Sorry, Jesus, let me, a fisherman, explain a couple things to you. It says, Peter rebukes Jesus. The word rebuke used here is the same word that Jesus uses to rebuke demons. Peter rebukes Jesus in the strongest possible way. Why was Peter so undone? I imagine that from childhood, while fishing with his father through the night hours, Peter has heard stories about this hero who would one day come to Israel. He's looked forward to the Messiah who would defeat all evil and injustice by ascending the throne. And then Jesus says, I am here. But... I'm not here to rule, but to serve. Not to take power, but to lose it. Not to live, but to die. And that is how I will defeat evil. You remember the blind man who could see, but only partially? So Peter could see that Jesus was the Messiah who would defeat all evil, but he could not see or refused to accept that suffering and death were part of God's plan for the Messiah. Jesus uses the word must. The Son of Man must suffer and die. So he's not just predicting that it will happen. He's saying that this is the way in which he will fulfill his mission. Suffering and death are essential elements to this plan. Why? Why would it be necessary for Jesus to die? One reason is, if we are to truly love, we must first be loved. Each of us has needs. We 
are looking for people to fulfill those needs. Our parents meet those needs. Our brothers, sisters, wives, children, friends, husbands meet those needs that we have. So, do we truly love them? Or are we being kind to them because we also need things from them? It's sometimes hard to know. The truest form of love would be from a person who has no needs whatsoever. Then we would know that what he's doing for others is not out of any self-interest, not out of some neediness that he has, but simply out of love. Jesus is God. He needs nothing from us. So, he's in a position to show us the best picture of true love. And this is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He has shown us true love. And not only shown it, but he has loved us. In fact, we love him because he first loved us. When one is loved in that way, they can be so full of love that he or she can learn to love others in that way. The second reason that Jesus must suffer and die is a legal reason. A penalty must be paid. In the second chapter of the Bible, God gave mankind one law and explained that there would be a penalty for breaking that law. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Every one of us has broken the law of God, and a penalty must be paid. The way that Jesus can save a sinner from damnation is through substitution. Jesus chose to take that penalty upon himself in order to save his people from damnation. The disciples were shocked to hear that the Messiah would suffer and die, and I suppose they were just as shocked to hear the next words that come out of his mouth as he invites them to join him on his mission. I'll read from verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Not only will Jesus suffer, but he calls us to follow him. First of all, to deny yourself. What does that mean? Deny yourself. It means I'm not to live for Ben anymore. I'm to live for Jesus. It's written, for the, law of Christ, for the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. We sign a blank check. For him. Are you holding something back? Do you come to Christ on your terms? 
offering him control of most of your life while reserving the right to rule in just one or two areas. C.S. Lewis wrote, The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. Secondly, Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow him. Jesus says, Since I'm a king on a cross, then if you are going to follow me, you must go to a cross. What does that mean? To take up your cross. Don Carson talks about it in this way. Live as if it is better to die than to lie. It would be better to die than to gossip. Better to die than be short-tempered, than to have sex outside of marriage. Better to die than to be unfaithful. Better to die than to be selfishly gaining the whole world. Better to die than to be ashamed of Jesus. Better to die than to live for some other pleasure than Jesus. And let's end with verse 35. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. Lose your life for the gospel. Try to hold on to your life. Try to maintain control for yourself. Come to Christ half-heartedly. Surrender 90% of your life to him. And Jesus says, you will lose your life. However, he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Give your life for Christ's sake. Christ is the good news. He is the gospel. Give your life so that Jesus will be praised. So that the next generation will know him. So that people in your workplace will know him. Give your life away. Treat it as something to be spent. And spend it for the good news. And you will find true life. One author wrote, I do not appeal to you to screw up your courage and sacrifice for Christ. I appeal to you to renounce all that you have to obtain life that satisfies your deepest longings. Jesus is viewed in many ways. He is a king who will defeat all evil and injustice. However, he will do it in ways that were strange to his disciples and are strange to us. God save us from committing the mistake that Peter made of trying to teach God the best way to accomplish his mission. Let's let God be God and we his obedient servants. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your love to us. Help us, Lord, however difficult it truly is to surrender to you, to stop fighting against you, to recognize your sacrifice for us, your love for us, your goodness to us, and live for you.
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.